Well, welcome everybody. Um, it's great to be together. <clears throat> I want to especially note um, a new attender here, uh, Simon Van Hagen. We rejoice. Chuck, Peggy, Team Van Hagen got back. If you're new here um, or just recently haven't followed their journey, um, they've been... Yes, would, would, you, would it be okay? Could we see without just wave to Simon quick? Hey, bud, welcome. Yeah, yeah. Many have been praying for him and the family. It's been a long journey, and um, we rejoice with you for sure, for sure. I, uh, some time ago, uh, met a young lady. Um, she was probably mid-20s, I'd say, and uh, I guess you could say her life consisted of some pretty poor choices, um, rough upbringing, uh, had no real connection to mom and dad. Um, when a desire to connect, um, she began to engage in some very unhealthy relationships and misplaced her passions. She was what we would probably say really messed up um, and very... Uh, no desire, no vision for life, no plans for life. As soon she found herself with two children, um, no husband, no future, no direction, and uh, just overwhelmed with life. But she found Jesus, or I should say Jesus found her. And, and the amazing thing about it is she found him at an Easter service. Because someone invited her. You see, there's many ways to share Jesus, and there's many ways that people come to Christ. Hopefully, we're very active personally. That's the, the most effective way of us building into people's lives and communicating the gospel face-to-face. But God works more than just that one way. And um, I could tell other stories of people who've come. Uh, some never wanted to. They just last minute decided, well, I'm going to go, walked into church, and Jesus got a hold of them. And so... You live next to people like this young lady. Their story, their journey is a little different, but they all have the same thing in common. There's many who don't know Jesus Christ yet and need to hear the most wonderful story ever because it changed everything. We're pretty quick to promote a movie. Hey, why don't you go see this movie? Great movie. But when it comes to saying people, you need to hear this story, you need to hear about Jesus, we're a little slower. And so let's be active. Not just to get a number, we, we want goals, it's a good goal. But there are people who desperately need the story of what Easter is. And so, I hope and just uh, exhort you um, to talk to your neighbors and those you probably already are sharing with and already invested in. Just invite them to a non-threatening place to pack and to hear a great, great story, a true story. One that changed everything. Like this young lady, pretty easy to lose heart even as a Christian. Especially these days. Circumstances, distress. And if you're a serious follower of Jesus, the place we most often lose heart is in the conflict of the flesh versus walking with God by His Spirit. Now about you that gets tired of losing sometimes, don't it? You feel like you've strung together enough days and 
you've made no progress losing a battle in your mind or with your mouth, with your tongue. It seems like in the midst of this conflict, it's really, really hard to hold up sometimes. It's like temptations come from every direction, discouragement. We have an enemy who's forever trying to plant seeds of doubt in our mind. And the reason we lose heart, though, is not because of the circumstances. And the reason we lose heart is not because of anything outside. The reason we lose heart is it's a problem on the inside. It's a struggle on the inside. Paul's addressing a young church who know very well this struggle. And part of helping them to grow in Jesus, he wants them to understand how they can grow, even in the midst of this conflict. So I'm going to read verses 5, 16 through 25, and we need these verses. And we're going to talk about them. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, that these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. As we read these verses, I think you'll notice as well, just simply full of the Holy Spirit. He's mentioned seven times by name in just these verses. He's presented as our sanctifier who alone can oppose and subdue our flesh. He's presented as one who can enable us to fulfill the law so that we are delivered from its harsh dominion and causes the fruit of righteousness to grow in our lives. So the enjoyment of the Christian life, of Christian liberty, of Christian freedom, depends on the Holy Spirit. And that's been hammered home. Paul has been very emphatic in making sure we understood that it is not anything we have done to try to conjure up freedom. It's by the Holy Spirit. Without the continuing, directing, sanctifying work of the Spirit, our liberty is bound to degenerate into license, which we've talked about a couple of weeks ago. Well, verse 16, he talks right about walking in the Spirit. And clearly his focus is a need to constantly live by the Spirit. You see the word walk here, and you see in other translations, live, same point. Let your conduct, let your attitudes be directed by the Spirit. And for the Christian, this is not really supposed to be some deeper or, or higher mystical life for the Christian. This is to be the normal Christian life, albeit supernatural work of the Spirit. But this is to be the norm. This isn't just for a, a certain few out there. Every Christian should be experiencing a day-to-day walking, living by the Spirit. And there's three aspects to what this means. 
One, it means living out the desires of the Spirit. You see, in the New Testament, we see over and over the Spirit's work is emphasized. In the Old Testament, we read that people, well, they walked with God. What that meant is they ordered their lives in accordance with God's desires. So a connection to walking in the Spirit is living in consistent obedience to God's commands or God's desires. Not to earn His favor, but to glorify Him. Because the Spirit puts desires in us that are strongest when we are obeying Christ's commands. In other words, we joyfully obey Christ's commands because the Spirit puts the strongest desire in us to do that. You ever seem to notice how we seem to be led by our strongest desire? You hate sin. I hate sin, but we struggle with it. We still fall into it. Why? Well, I want you to think about food as an example, because we tend to like to do that. I like this thing that started some years ago called potlucks. I think that's a win-win for everybody. And uh, everybody brings something. And I, and I learned quickly, though, that there'd be dishes that keep reoccurring. One always had mushrooms in it. Lots of mushrooms and onions. And then people would bring these berry pies. Every potluck. Mushrooms, onions, berry pies. That's no temptation for me. I have no desire for mushrooms, onions, or berries. I don't want berries in anything. When I go through that potluck line, I say, no thanks. I do not desire that. I hate that, to be honest with you. I don't want that. There's a desire within me to eat, and I could be really, really hungry. But the desire to not eat it is stronger than the desire to eat. You with me? I could be hungry and famished, but there ain't no way I'm going to eat any mushrooms, onions, or berries. It ain't going to happen. Because I have a stronger desire not to eat that than my desire to eat. And I think the personal application applies to our lives as we struggle with sin. If we hate sin, and if we hate the sinful nature and its passions, its desires, we're not going to pursue those things. We're going to pursue desires that the Spirit puts within us, which is stronger than the desires of the flesh. So if you desire to walk in the Spirit, set your mind on the Spirit, who will give you stronger desires than your flesh desires, because the reality is before you came to Christ, you didn't have the power. There were no stronger desires than your flesh. But when you come to faith in Christ, maybe you don't know that, but you do now. The Spirit has stronger desires. And He can give them to you by His power. And so the Spirit puts stronger desires in us to follow Christ. And that's partly what it means to walk in the Spirit, is to live with the desires of the Spirit. But there's a second aspect to it. You see here in verse 18, it's pretty clear. But if you are led by the Spirit, that word led is kind of a hint. It implies that we live under the leadership of the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. Paul's purpose here is to emphasize the Spirit's initiative, the Spirit's enabling power in the process. God's Spirit obviously will always lead us 
to what God desires. He'll always lead us to glorify Christ. The person who comes around and says, hey, God led me to, lead, to marry this person who didn't know Christ and who was far from Christ. That's not the Spirit. That's your flesh. God's Spirit wouldn't lead you to do what's unbiblical. And so that's always a measuring. Is the Spirit leading me? Look at the Scriptures. If it's contradicting, it ain't the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit's leadership in us following and living under the leadership of the Spirit is part of what we're talking about, walking by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit because we're alive by the Spirit. We're God's children. We're not under the law. Why? Because we're alive to the Spirit. And the Spirit will always lead us to righteousness. There's a third spec, third aspect of it the Scripture points out here, verse 22 through 23. We'll look at even more in a second. But it's living with the evidence of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit's a powerful image of the character of the living Christ being displayed in our lives. And the Spirit ensures that we will demonstrate the character of Christ. But what does that look like? It's almost like God knew we'd ask the question, so He says, well, look at verse 22 and 23. That's what the character of Christ will look like. This will be the fruit that comes from your life. Moment by moment of trusting God, the Spirit brings this Christ-like behavior into our life. And Paul, I'm, I'm grateful, is not just interested in modifying our behavior, but he wants fruit produced by the Spirit. And fruit produced by the Spirit does not command performance. It just seeks to do what God desires. Whether it's in a quiet one-on-one, or whether it's in a group of 800, it doesn't matter. Living by the Spirit means living with the evidence of the Spirit. There can be no fruit without living by the desires of the Spirit and under His leadership. Many of us have a sign that probably close to our front door, it says, Welcome. And we want people to come to a welcoming place, our home. And oftentimes we'll even say something like, Make yourself at home. But that's a lie. We don't really mean that, do we? We want them to make themselves in a room or two rooms that we want them in. We don't want to make themselves at home because then they would go into the rooms that we threw all the stuff from the one room to clean that one up. They would start incurring all the mess. We don't want them digging through our closets. You don't say make yourself at home and they say, good, we're going to go in the attic and see what you got up there. No. We don't want them in the basement. It's a mess down there. We don't want them to make themselves at home. We want them to make themselves in a room. The room we tidied up. The room we cleaned up. That's where we want them. We kind of, unfortunately, operate that way in a spiritual realm with Jesus. We say, Jesus, welcome. Holy Spirit, welcome. But come in this room, in this room, because I've tidied them up. But don't make yourself at home, because that means you're going to want to go in the closets. You're going to want to look in the attic. Don't look too close, Jesus, because you're going to want to go in the basement. Paul says in another place as he prayed for the Ephesian church, I pray that Christ may dwell in you richly. Love the word dwell. It means, well, make yourself home in. That's God's Spirit, what He wants. He wants all of us. He wants not just a living room, but he wants to clean the basement and he wants to clean the attic. 
And that's what it means to live with the evidence of the Spirit is God has all of us. We're totally cleansed. And from our lives, whether it be our vocation, our recreation, our speech, or our decisions, there's evidence of the Spirit. That's what it means to live by the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. The problem is we experience a continuous conflict. Verse 17, For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are, here's a word, warfare word, opposition to one another. So strong is the flesh, as you look at verse 17 at the end of it, so that you may not do the things that you please. This is a battle. This is a conflict. I really wish when I came to Christ that the con- there was no conflict. i got to be honest. I wish I could wake up every morning with my thoughts being a complete habitation of the Holy Spirit. I wish so much that when somebody cut me off in traffic, I said, God bless you. May God's favor rest upon your little Ford Focus. I wish. But I have a flesh that's opposed to the Spirit. There's a part of me that hopes that Ford Focus breaks down the next mile. Teach it to cut in front of me. I mean, there's a battle. And it's, it's not just in those little things, it's in all things. And so fierce is the battle that the flesh can cause us, that it can cause us to do things that we don't want to do. Read Romans 7. It's a whole chapter about who we would call a super apostle, Paul, who says, my flesh is so strong, I wind up doing things I don't want to do. Why? It's a battle. Our struggle against sin is more likely evidence that we're growing in Christ, though. We're striving to do the good our flesh doesn't want us to do. Otherwise, it wouldn't even bother us. I say this because part of, to me, the battle of the flesh is this casual attitude towards sin that the enemy wants us to have. Do you recognize the conflict you are in? Some are going to come this next week and not even think much about the cross. And the reason they won't think much about the cross is because they don't think too highly of the holiness of God and they don't think too desperately about how horrible their sin is. You and I dare not casually approach this week, or any week for that matter. But Monday, Thursday, Good Friday is all about the cross that was so needed because we can't win the conflict. We dare not have a casual attitude towards sin. Because that's what the enemy wants us to have. That's what the flesh is always trying to fuel. That you and I would shrug our shoulders and say, it's not a big deal. Yeah, I said something about that person in school, but they are kind of weird. That's no big deal. Well, everybody else talking about them around the cafeteria table. Oh yeah, it is a big deal. It's sin. And we dare not become casual about those things. You and I face the world's temptations We face Satan's temptations. We have the flesh's temptations. We dare not allow ourselves to be complacent, to take a complacent posture in the Christian life because you and I are in a conflict. And we're only going to find victory if we look at it as very serious and call upon the Spirit to give us the power we need. 
And again in Romans 7, which is part of your next step, Paul illustrates his battle and its intensity. The flesh and spirit have competing agendas. As a battle will face day in and day out. We're told of these deeds of the flesh. If you look at the text, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which means they're kind of obvious. And he gives a list. I wish you would have had a shorter list that I could maybe duck a couple. But it's, it's a pretty long list. And what struck me is, one, the word deeds is plural. We're going to get to why that stands in, in contrast to the Spirit. But he lists some of them. And I say some of them because he mentions that. He says, verse 21, he ends the list and says, things like these. In other words, this is an exhaustive list. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Some of the things that just came to Paul's mind right off the bat. You see, there's something inside us. Our flesh. The Greek word is sarks. And this sarks is our sinful heart. It's that sin-desiring aspect of our whole being as opposed to the God-desiring aspect. And if I could say that the dynamic of the flesh is simply this. It has a desire to control. To control. Our flesh wants to control our life. Our flesh seeks for you and I to live by its impulses. But the desire of the Spirit, that's to surrender. And they're in opposition to one another. And if you look at this list, it's pretty evident. This flesh, this fallen self, this flesh whose desires, even at best, originate from sin and are stained by it. But make no mistake, all the works of the flesh arise from a problem with our hearts, just as Jesus said in Mark seven twenty-one through 22 I got thinking about that, though, and perhaps maybe our greater problem is not our desire for bad things, but our over-desires for good things. The food's good. You overeat, it's called gluttony. Speech is good, but you can destroy people with your speech. Sex is a gift from God, but when misused, it's a sin. Material things, God blesses with material things. But when we put an overemphasis on them and live for that, it's called greed. It's a sin. And maybe that's our greatest battle, is the overemphasis on things that are good. Now notice this list, these acts of the sinful nature, these deeds of the flesh. They're not all actions. They're also attitudes. Is there just as much of the flesh as our actions are? Three words have to do with the works of the flesh, the first three. They're areas of sexuality. And you see him right off the bat. Verse 19, immorality, impurity, sensuality. These words address sexual intercourse between unmarried persons, unnatural sexual practices and relationships, also uncontrolled, unbridled sexuality. He's saying these are works of the flesh. He goes then to talk about two words that have to do with this area of religion. Idolatry, sorcery, or witchcraft. Paul speaking to very specific occulted activities, specific religions and practices, which we're not going to go into right now. The point being, idolatry is looking to anything as a substitute for God. Inadequate. All substitutes are inadequate. Sorcery is faking the work of the Spirit. They're of the flesh. He then talks about eight words that describe how the flesh 
destroys relationships. Why do marriages struggle? Because of the flesh. Why do kids rebel? Because of the flesh. Why do you and I lash out in anger? It's not the other person's fault. Nobody can make you angry. Your flesh responds in anger. It's pretty convenient to blame other people, isn't it? But the text won't let us off the hook. There's three destructive attitudes, selfish ambition, covetousness, and strife. The word strife, interesting enough, probably isn't as strong enough word as we look at it. It's this idea, it's connected to hatred. A little stronger than just the word strife, it seems, doesn't it? Covetousness, desiring what others have. It's a zeal for a, that comes from a hungry ego. Selfish ambition, self-seeking. But then there's some words that describe the results of these attitudes. That is outbursts of anger, fits of rage, disputes, argumentative, picking a fight, dissensions, divisions between people, factions, permanent warring groups or warring parties. These acts, these attitudes are results of attitudes. And the flesh destroys relationships. And the last two words, and certainly fitting in our culture today, refer to substance abuse, drunkenness, carousing. Some translations have orgies, and our immediate thought might be sexual, but it's really the context is more of drinking orgies they had back then. We would call them drinking, drunken binges. Like, unfortunately, spring break will have a lot of that. It's speaking to the person who can't control their appetites, who choose not to. The whole point is one of the works of the flesh is addiction. It's addiction to pleasure. It creates substance, substances and behaviors of the flesh. And Paul gives a stern warning here. He's referring to habitual practice rather than infrequent and unrepented lapses as he warns them at the end of verse 21. I've warned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. For someone continually indulging in a sinful nature without battling it is to show that that person does not have the Son in them. And Paul's not looking here to undermine Christian assurance. He's aiming to banish complacency among the church. And so we have these deeds of the flesh, but then we have the fruit of the Spirit, which is singular. So you got these deeds of the flesh, list them, but then you have this fruit, which is singular. What's the deal here? Well, deeds refer to what man can do which in the case of the works of the law has already been shown to be inadequate. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other end, suggests it's a natural product of what the Spirit can do rather than man. It's made possible by a living relationship between God and man and, man and women who come to Christ. The singular form expresses the qualities of the Spirit, our, our unity. Janet Moberg mentioned in our Sunday school class a couple of weeks ago, that the fruit of the Spirit is more like bunches of grapes, and that's a good analogy. Not individual pieces of fruit like you'd find maybe in a bowl. And so the fruit of the Spirit, there's unity among these specific things that are mentioned. And they're, and they're to be found in all Christians. I do find it significant that love appears first. Based on the surrounding context in Galatians, there's a clear focus on love. And what is being shown to us is that where the power for love comes from, is the Spirit, which shouldn't surprise us because Romans tells us God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Spirit. And so this list is evident. It comes from the Spirit. And the choice of this word fruit tells us three things. I just want to go over these quickly. 
that Christian growth is gradual. It's gradual. And sometimes it shows up when difficulty comes. Maybe you heard yourself tell yourself this one time or a couple and say, you know what, if this would have happened two years ago, I would have blown up. What happened? There was growth. You didn't know it. But growth is gradual. It's like a potato. It's under the earth and it's growing. You just don't see it. And that's how the Spirit works. It's gradual in our lives. And sometimes we don't know it until difficulty comes and we respond in such a different, healthier way. The growth of the Spirit's fruit is also inevitable. As a Christian, you are filled with the Spirit. There will be fruit if your conversion is authentic. Also, the fruit of the Spirit has internal roots. It's not about traits. It's much deeper than that. Consider an apple tree. Do apples on the tree make the tree alive? No. Apples don't give life. They're a sign that the tree is alive. You see, the life produces the fruit, not the other way around. And to be truly led by the Spirit is to grow the fruit of the Spirit. Because He's alive in you. And He's the dynamic, the power, the life which bears fruit in our life. It's probably best to see all these qualities that is flowing together out of a believer and towards God and others. And that Christian growth is symmetrical because the real fruit of the Spirit always grows up together. You do not get one part or the other. And we say some days I'll work on patience. Some days, how about every day, right? And, uh, and then next day I'm going to work on, work on gentleness, but they don't work that way. They grow symmetrically. That's just the way it's designed. God's fruit is not made for us to pick one that we want to work on and just kind of ignore the others. God's Spirit takes a complete unity of this fruit and we grow in it. It's worth note looking at the fruit. We're not going to break them down really, but just a couple things to note. Love. Spirit-led believers express sincere love for others. Express their love for God because He first loved us. Joy. The Spirit produces a life of satisfying joy while living in the flesh only leads to constant dissatisfaction and defeat. Peace. You see, the Spirit also creates peace in the life of a Spirit-led believer. And peace rules the hearts of those who walk by the Spirit. We can't really have love, joy, peace without the Holy Spirit. Then there's other things. Patience and kindness and goodness. Patience, enduring situations and putting up with difficult people is not easy. We need God's Spirit to deal with our own children, with people in traffic. We need patience and kindness and goodness. To me, it's one of the attributes I remember hearing a little bit about growing up. I don't hear much anymore, and that's being kind. You know it when you see it, isn't it? But it just seems like it's, we don't even talk about it much anymore. But what strikes me with these all three of these... They're authentic, they're real acts that flow from an internal power, an internal place. You can't fake kindness. Either you're kind or you're not. It's not performance because the flesh will manipulate. It's hypocritical. It's cynical. It's negative. And yet that's not the Spirit. The list goes on to tell us that part of this fruit is its faithfulness. Faithfulness in life and marriage and ministry. It's gentle. There's gentleness. Love the word gentleness. It means strength under control. 
It's not weak like our world would call gentleness. This is strong, but it's under control. Jesus, in one of the few verses, if ever, he described himself, he said he's gentle. Thinking that's a pretty good attribute then. Uh, I'd like that one in my life. Gentleness, strength under control. Self-control. In our flesh, we're out of control. Look at the list. Drunkenness, immorality, that's out of control. But when the Spirit's operating our life, there's self-control. The question then comes, I want that second list. We like the second list. It sounds better than the first list. People will think better of us with that second list. How do we have that type of life? I want it. Well, we know it doesn't happen by the law. Verse 23, against such things, there is no law. Ain't going to come by the law. So how do we consistently experience growth? Now, some could read these verses and conclude Christian life is like a spiritual tug of war. That believers are consigned to live a spirituality of a meager existence or perpetual defeat in minimal growth. But the text tells us we're not hopeless, we're not powerless in this conflict. There's actions we can take that we can cooperate with God's Spirit. The first thing, remember, you belong to Christ. All that is His is ours. We're free to acknowledge where we've given ground. We're free to confess when we have not kept in step with the Spirit because our acceptance and welcome from the Father rests not on our own character, but on His. Let's take a basic example of TV channel surfing. Nobody in here probably does that. It's where the remote comes in. That's why you want the remote. You're going to channel surf, and, and, and so you're surfing, and all of a sudden you hit something visually that's a little stimulating. And so you linger. But you're like, I shouldn't linger here. And there's many reasons that go through your mind. My spouse might walk in, or if my kids walk in, i got to tell my accountability group what I saw. Are those really the best motives? Probably not. Couldn't we just say, I belong to Christ? So I shouldn't be watching that. Yeah, that should be our motivation. That should be enough. Remember, you belong to Christ. Verse 24 tells us another thing we need to do, and that's strangle sin at the motivational level. Verse 24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus, remember, you belong to Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's speaking to an ongoing process in our life. It means to put an end to the ruling and attractive power that idols have in our lives. To destroy their ability to aggravate and inflame our thoughts and our desires. Crucifying the flesh is is about strangling sin at the motivational level rather than simply setting ourselves against sin at the behavioral level. We must not just ask, are we doing wrong, but why are we doing wrong? We disobey God, don't we, in order to get something we feel we must have. How do we deal with that? Not just changing our behavior. It's unfortunately a word that we don't use as much. It's called repentance. It's confessing our neediness. It's saying, I didn't just violate your law, God. I didn't just disobey. There's something within me, God, that I need to repent of. That was the motivating reason for it. That's what we need to deal with. It's talking about an ongoing crucifixion which we ourselves do to our sinful natures, we confess and repent. 
and put to death our old nature within us. And it's not a passive process. Consciously, consistently saying no to sin. Reminding ourselves we're in Christ, pursuing His glory. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. And third, keep in step with the Spirit. It's, it means just what it says, step. Moment by moment. Decision by decision. This is a positive process. It's not just, quote-unquote, giving up things. The Spirit's a living person who glories in and magnifies Jesus. This isn't just an intellectual process. We worship Christ. We do so with the help of the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we adore Him until our hearts find Him more beautiful than the object we felt we had to have. And as we do that, we'll be putting to death the flesh and we'll find fruit growing. We'll find moment by moment, we're consciously seeking to keep in step with the Spirit. It requires a listening heart. It requires a hungry heart that will order our decisions and our life around God's Spirit's leadership. Another youth pastor story. Um, Dan, you can probably use this idea, but we combined with another youth group one time. I was friends with the other youth pastor, and we would occasionally trash talk and love. And uh, how about how much better our youth groups were than theirs? Weird stuff. Anyways, we said, hey, I got, let's get together our groups and let's do something. And he thought of this great idea. He says, let's play football. Youth group against youth group. I said, yeah, we're on. I got some good athletes, man. Yeah, this is going to be good. And he says, and he got talking. He says, I got a better idea. He said, let's play like in, a, in, a, in mud. I said, this will be fun. So I'm thinking a little mud. No, he has a farmer who has a barnyard, and he pumps water into it. And I mean pumps. By the time we get there, this is like a mini river with mud and other stuff somewhere in there. Let's play football. Okay. I kind of warned the kids and said, you might want to bring a change of clothes. I don't know how bad it's going to be, yada, yada. It was bad. We got in there, and the very first play, you realize really quickly, there ain't going to be a whole lot of success here because I can't move hardly. We're wiping out. You couldn't cut, you couldn't throw, you could hardly catch, couldn't make any progress. You're grabbing people so you don't fall down. By the end of the game, we were not only muddy, muddy, but we were covered head to toe, faces, everything. It was so bad you could hardly even tell who other people were. It was nasty. It was a ton of fun, but it was nasty. The mud had caused some real problems. It created a real identity recognition problem. You didn't even know who you're throwing it to. There was very, very difficult to have any kind of success. While there was frustration because you could hardly move, it was difficult to execute any kind of plays or plans. And when the game was done, there was really only one appropriate response. There's only one thing you could do before those kids were getting in that bus. And that is, you're throwing them clothes out. Those aren't coming on this bus. you got to get rid of them bad boys because they're not just full of mud. There were other things in that barnyard that were nasty. And it wasn't going to 
It wasn't going to work to just take a cloth and try to wipe it off. That wasn't going to cut it. I mean, no little effort to try to just wipe it off and, and, and throw away the tissue was going to do it. It took more than that. Because those clothes were nasty, stinky, completely muddy. They needed new clothes. Even more, though, than new clothes, they needed a shower. Because they were muddy inside and out. And they experienced life in the mud. No success. Lost your identity. Plans were thwarted. Very little progress. And yet, when they showered and cleaned the inn, they got the new clothes on, you could see who they were. They could see where they were going. They were on solid ground. They could now progress. They could now execute plans where they could not in the mud. And after cleansing themselves and getting all clean, guess what we didn't do? We didn't go jump back in the mud. Why? Because we were clean. That would have been a dumb thing. That would have made any sense. You see, in a Christian life, you've been cleaned up. Jesus has cleansed you. You're clean in and you're clean out. But I need to warn you, there's a strong pull towards that mud. Satan, our flesh, the world, the culture we live in would want to pull you back in that mud. And it's an ongoing conflict. But what I want to remind you is that you're clean. The last place a clean, cleansed person belongs is in the mud. The good news is, as strong as that pull is towards the mud, stronger yet is the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to lead us and guide us to God's best in God's glory. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank You for Your Word. Man, it's so practical and it's so helpful to, to know how to live life. God, I thank You for Your Spirit which takes Your Word and helps us understand it. And you've given us incredible encouragement this morning, God, that we can keep in step with your Spirit. That you've made it possible. Lord, even in the conflict, even when the pull is strong towards the mud, you say we can grow. We can grow in dependence upon you. We can grow in the areas our thoughts, our decisions. And Lord, we can claim your power to walk towards your best. And I'm sure, God, in this room, there's some who really feel like they're losing the battle. Whether it be just addictions, Lord, perpetual issues with anger, gossip, the other sins that are listed, there's a long list. And Lord, it's a battle, it's a conflict. And what I'm praying, God, is You'd help each person in here recognize who they are in You. Help them to become deep and settle in their spirit that they belong to You. And you got a better life than a life in the mud. you got a life that's so glorious. A life in the Spirit, God, which is full of adventure and vitality, which results in a fruit in our life, not despair.
please encourage my brothers and sisters this day. And help us each lean upon you and draw from your strength this week to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.